Well, thank you for being with us again. Uh, can you believe it? This is our last of 10 studies. We've covered a lot of ground uh, in the 10 weeks, and I hope that you're much more comfortable with the book of Revelation now. It doesn't scare you. Uh, there's a lot that we've left out, but I think the general flow and the life of that period is something that you'll be able to uh, uh, have with you anytime. You won't need a book to, to explain things to people if they have questions because it's, uh, we try to grab onto uh, concepts. But <clears throat> let me have prayer. We'll get right into this and see this great time when the Lord comes back to our earth. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of your people for 10 weeks to uh, focus on the book of Revelation. We know it's an unusual book, but Father, it lets us know that you are in control of the movements of our lives as well as the movements of this world. We are so glad that your plan for this earth uh, is right on course. Uh, we feel that we're soon to begin some of the things that we've looked at in the book of Revelation, uh, that as the church age comes to a close and the rapture draws near, uh, things in this world are now beginning to take place. We are a global society. We are a world at, that's in total unrest. No one has any answers. There's no leadership coming from anywhere. And that's because the world has rejected its maker, its creator. Father, we know that you have a plan for our lives now at this period. So help us to be faithful to the Savior and help our last study, even to help us more to see how important it is to be faithful to Christ. Uh, so again, be with us as we study, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We are thankful, again, that we can have this study with you. This is really the climax of what John sees in heaven. Uh, God has lifted him to heaven so he could see different scenes unfold before him. And after he's seen all of them, he was given the commission to write the book of Revelation. And we want to turn to chapter 19, if you'll turn there, please. I want to get right into this so that maybe there, there might be questions at the end where uh, we want to have some discussion. But uh, my thoughts are wrapped around two bullet points. We want to look at, number one, what John sees as he writes these things down for us later, but what he sees in heaven. And then secondly, second bullet point, we'll look at what Jesus says. Uh, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where Jesus talks about this time. And together we'll put those two things together. So John sees the return of the Lord. Jesus talks about the time he comes back to this earth. So that's what we're going to look at. Chapter 19, follow along with me as we read this together. His return, notice in chapter 19, verse 1, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. This is a heavenly scene. Uh, this is not focusing on earth at this point. The chapter will close on earth. 
but right now the focus is on what's happening in heaven. And if you'll notice, I heard a great voice, strong voice, much people in heaven saying, hallelujah. Uh, expression of praise, salvation, and honor, and glory, and power unto the Lord our God. And if you'll notice in verse 3, again they said, hallelujah. The last part of verse 4, hallelujah. Two phrases put together, praise God, or God is to be praised. In verse 5, a voice came out of the throne saying, praise our God. And then the last part of verse 6, this voice of many waters, the voice of thunderings. I mean, the, the volume is just turned up to the top. Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. So he heaven is celebrating. You remember the last time we heard heaven speak, Heaven was rejoicing because it, uh, heaven said, it is done. The judgments of God in this climactic firework finale hammers the earth, the vials of God's wrath pours upon the earth. In fact, I'd like for you to see, turn back to chapter 16 again. Notice what it was that was being singled out for our attention also what was singled out for judgment in this world. Glancing again at verse 2, you will notice that God's judgment began as he struck every person that was following the beast, the Antichrist. People that had nothing to do with God, they don't want God. They have given themselves to their sin, to this man called the Antichrist. They are measured out for judgment, there is this sore with malignancy that strikes upon them all around the world. Everyone who has rejected God and followed this man, they are being judged. And if you'll notice in verse 8, their judgment is not just the sore, but their judgment is also being scorched by this sun. And we talked about that last week. But these people who have... Uh, intentionally and willingly wanted to remove God from this world and follow the Antichrist, <clears throat> they are marked out for judgment. <clears throat> Notice in verse 10, the Antichrist himself, where it says the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat or the government of the beast. Uh, this government coalition, he was ruling the world where it says that God's wrath now falls upon the Antichrist in this, this government. And his kingdom was full of darkness. It means that it can't operate. They're totally non-functional. They can't do anything. And they are filled with pain. So we have the Antichrist and his government has been singled out for judgment. Everyone else who has followed them, they're singled out for judgment. What I didn't show you in chapter 16, notice in verse 17, and the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done, and we saw that. <clears throat> verse 19, 
and the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon came into remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of, of the fierceness of his wrath. And then God literally shakes everything to pieces. Three areas singled out for judgment, the Antichrist and his government, people who followed in this awful, wicked government, and then Babylon. Now, turn to 19, <clears throat> if you would, please. And if you'll notice that one of the reasons that they are rejoicing is heaven, in heaven, in verse 2, is true and righteous are his judgments, for he has judged the great whore that corrupted the earth. Hang with me. Turn back to 17, chapter 17. What we are not looking at in our study is Babylon. In chapter 17, Babylon is presented as the the ecclesiastical center of the world, the church center, the false church center of the world. In, 19, in 18, it's also seen as the economic center of the world. We're not getting into that at all. But I wanted you to see in chapter 17, verse 1, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great whore that sets upon many waters. If you'll notice in verse 5, the name of this lady is Babylon. And it says in verse 6, I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. We haven't touched on this, but I wanted you to see this. And if you go back to 19, uh, while I'm sharing a little bit, that judgment, uh, God's wrath, has fallen on three areas. The, the Antichrist and his government, the people throughout the world that have followed him, and then this false religion that has had a direct hand in making sure that believers were hunted and persecuted and killed. That's involved here. What do we know about this false religion? Well, they don't have anything to do with the Bible. Uh, they don't have anything to do with the Savior. Uh, they persecute and kill those who have a Bible and those who worship the Savior and love Him. There's more to be said about this false church, but we won't, we won't be getting into that here. But in chapter 19, one of the reasons that heaven is so excited is that all three of these enemies have now been dealt with. The Antichrist, his followers, and this false church uh, that together have tried to do everything they can to remove God from this world. Uh, it's just, they are thrilled. It's done. It's over. God's judgment has rendered this world completely flat. There's, there's been no contest, and the world is now in ruin. 
because God has judged this world. So that's one of the reasons that they're excited and they're filled with praise. Hallelujah. Finally, it's done. Sin that's held on to this world for so long, it's done. Now remember, they're getting ready. This book is getting ready. The Lord himself will come back to this earth. There's something else happening in heaven. It's a very good time. I have it on the screen here, love and sweetness. Uh, the church is going, or the heaven is going to uh, witness a wedding of sorts. Notice this. In chapter 19, verse 7, Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the Lamb, that's the Lord Jesus, is come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness, as, notice your Bible notes, plural, of the saints. And he said unto me, Write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. We have a wedding here. Now, Jesus is getting ready to return to this earth. He's still in heaven. The scene is in heaven. And when he comes, his bride will come with him. So the question we ask, well, who's the bride? And you've learned your Bible well enough over the years to know that we who come to Christ for salvation, we are his bride. Um, Believers from the time of the resurrection of, of our Savior until the time when the rapture takes place, all of these believers together are referred to as the object of his love, his bride. Now, I think you can put it together pretty easily. Jesus is in heaven. His bride is with him. Both of them will soon come back to this earth together. My point, once again, is that the bride, believers, the church age, those who have come to Christ for salvation, are safe in heaven with the Savior during the tribulation. We will not go through this period of tribulation because we are in heaven. Well, somebody says, well, how did we get there? The rapture, that was the picture that we saw in John chapter, or Revelation chapter 4, when John was lifted to heaven. The church is in heaven with the Savior, and as the Savior gets ready to return to this earth, there's going to be a very special wedding, the Bible says, a marriage supper of the Lamb. Let me explain to you three different aspects of the Hebrew wedding. And if you have a little one that's growing up and someday he or she's going to get married, they will not like these three phases of the Jewish Hebrew wedding. Uh, don't try to pull it off because they won't go along with it at all. Okay, here's phase one. When a man and woman were going to get married, uh, the bride with her parents would come to a particular place. The groom with his parents would come to a particular place. They would have a rabbi there. Uh, they would have an official ceremony. They would have a signing of documents. Uh, they would become literally husband and wife. From that point on, he is the husband, she is the bride. 
It's all settled. It's all done. But after that ceremony, the bride goes back with her parents to her home. The groom goes back to his father's house with mom and dad. And they do not live together for a period of a year, or if the marriage is prearranged before that, more than a year. They're just apart. They're married. He's the husband. She's the wife. It's all legal. They've signed the documents. They've had the ceremony. But they don't live together for a year. Now, can you imagine having a wedding today? And here's a young man and a young woman, and they're so much in love, and they're getting ready. They say their vows. They have their kissy-kissy, and everyone's celebrated, and they have a reception. And then the mom and dad say to the bride, okay, it's time to go home. Come home with us. And to the groom, mom and dad, so oh, glad we had a great ceremony. Let's go home now. That's not going to work. <laughs> it's just not going to work. But in the Hebrew culture, that was phase one of the marriage ceremony. Phase two, there would be a time when the father of the groom would send his son to get his bride and to bring the bride home. This was very significant too. The message was, would go out so everybody would know what's going to happen. The bride would get her attendants ready, um, her court ready. People along the way would, would be informed what's happening. And then the, the groom with his group would come and there would be a lot of celebration and a lot of excitement. People would come out in the streets. And as the, the, the groom gets his bride, bringing her back home, she would be given gifts. There'd be a lot of excitement, a lot of clapping and cheering. And it's, it's a very festival, very festival time. But that's phase two. The father would send his son to get his bride to bring the bride home. And then number three, when the bride and groom are together at the father's house, that's the way they did it in that uh, Hebrew culture, that they would recognize the marriage, they would celebrate the marriage, and the marriage union would be consummated. Three different aspects. What we have here is phase number three. Now, keep your finger right there and turn to second Corinthians chapter 11. You have to see this. I'm going somewhere with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. If you've never seen this, using this wedding terminology, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 2, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. He's wanting them to remain faithful to the Savior, and they are. But notice in verse 2, 2 Corinthians 11, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He's using wedding terminology. I have engaged you, talking about engagement or espousal. This is the first phase of the Jewish wedding. When this couple would get together, 
they would sign the documents, they would become husband and wife, even though they were, would not be living together for a while, but they would be husband and wife. And what he's saying here, and you can flip back to chapter 19, what he's saying is that when we came to Christ for salvation, we became his bride right then and there. And Paul's appeal was, all right, Jesus is in his world. We are here in this world. We are engaged. We are really married. But be faithful until he comes for you. That's what he's talking about. And when the rapture happens, that's when the Father sends his Son from his world in heaven to get his bride from this world, earth, and Jesus takes his bride home. And now in heaven, this third aspect of the Jewish marriage custom is seen where they have the marriage supper of the lamb. That's where the marriage between Christ and his followers is celebrated, it's recognized. And the union between Christ and his bride is now more full than it's ever been before. Now, we have a wonderful relationship with Christ right now. We love him. He loves us. We know that. But this day is going to be even more special as the Savior declares very clearly that to all of heaven that we are his love. And the only way I can really explain this is to say that uh, think back in your own life where the Lord Jesus has been the closest to you and you have been lost in his love for you. You'd have done anything for him. You'd have gone anywhere. He was so close, so precious, so real. The Bible tells us that that glimpse of our relationship with the Savior, that's the down payment. The Holy Spirit brings that new life in us and we understand the relationship we have in Christ. But that's only the down payment in heaven our relationship with Christ will become full. We'll get the other 90%. And our relationship with the Savior will just mushroom into this wonderful love relationship. And that's what's very, very significant about what's happening here. I'd like to spend more time with this, but I can't. We have to move on. But there are two things. Heaven is excited. It's done. God's judgment upon this earth world has really been fulfilled. The bride has made herself ready. Jesus is now coming back to earth. And Jesus sees three things. Notice, or John sees three things. Notice, here is the climax of the book. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And him that sat upon him was faithful and true, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. And we have this description of our Savior here. Now, notice heavens were opened. We've already seen this once in chapter 6, where it says the heavens were have departed like a scroll. We compared it to taking two sides or the center of a curtain and pushing it back, opening it up so you can see through to the outside. When it says that heaven is opened, literally the heavens are taken back and people on earth are now able to see Jesus who is getting ready to come 
to this earth. Now what we're going to do is we're going to rewind the tape a little bit because in the last judgments, the focus was upon the judgments falling upon this earth, how God was going to cripple this world and devastate it and bring it under his control. The focus was upon the judgment. Didn't say anything about the return of the Savior. Now we're going to look at how the Savior's return and that kind of matches up. So what we see are three things. The Savior returns. This is what John sees. And there are three things that happen. The first one is this. <clears throat> In verse chapter 19, verse 19, I saw the beast, the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and his army. Here's the first thing. The beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which he had deceived them, that received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Now, the first thing that, that the Apostle John sees is that this man who was considered unconquerable, he was the ruler of the world. Who can make war against him? You remember that's what the world was saying. Uh, he is unstoppable, unconquerable. Well, uh, before the Savior, he's no more than a leaf in the wind. And the first thing John sees is that the beast and the false prophet are taken alive and they're cast into the lake of fire. This is the first reference to anyone being cast into the lake of fire and they are cast in alive, and they will remain there alive in the lake of fire. And John talks a little bit more about that in chapter 20, but that's the first thing he sees. The second thing, as this army now on earth is getting ready to try to uh, oppose Christ, there is no battle. The Savior simply annihilates everyone, and that's what we see, verse 21, the remnant, this is the army, was slain with the sword of them that sat upon the horse. Uh, it's, there is no battle. So not only are the, the beast, the Antichrist, the prophet, they're disposed of, this man is nothing, his armies are completely obliterated, they're no problem, and in chapter 20, the third thing, and I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is called devil, Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit, shut him up, set a seal on it, that's kind of putting a lock on it, that he should not deceive the nations no more until the thousand years should be fulfilled. And, and so we see three things happening when Jesus comes. John sees the Antichrist, who is the leader of this world, wicked world, taken, thrown in the lake of fire. His armies are annihilated. And then Satan himself is taken off of the earth, confined in the bottomless pit. And that's what we see. I wish we had time to 
draw the comparison here between the Antichrist. He is the opposite of Christ. He is against Christ. Our Savior is pure, not this man, he's vile. Our Savior did good, not this man, he was savage. The Savior was one who wanted to, wanted to fulfill God's will. Uh, the Antichrist wants to remove God in every way possible from the minds of men, from the world, complete opposites. We have the bride of Christ, pure. We have the great whore who's totally destroyed. And there are so many different comparisons as you go through here to remind us what the world had become and now what's going to happen as Christ, the pure Son of God, takes a hold of this world. But there are three things that happen here. And I wanted you to see that that's what John sees, but that's all that he sees. Now, go back to Matthew 24. I'm going to try to wrap this up pretty quickly because I want to throw in what Jesus says about this period, Matthew 24, and he fills in some of the blanks in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, you remember the apostles came to the Savior and asked him a question, when will the end of the world come? You see that in 24 verse 3. When will be the end of the world? And as Jesus gives them the answer, as he talks to them, he sees clearly the book of Revelation, the period that we have just gone through. And let me show you that what Jesus says is identical to what we have been seeing in the book of Revelation, especially in chapter 6. The tribulation begins with the unveiling of the Antichrist. That's the first thing. And notice in chapter 24, verse 15, he, he, re, he refers specifically to the Antichrist. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Remember, the Jewish temple has been built. And the man who has allowed the Jewish people to worship the place that has been reserved for God, he marches in and declares he's the only God that the world needs. The Antichrist is right here in this passage. Second thing we notice in chapter 6 was the removal of peace and of wars. And notice in chapter 24, verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you not be troubled, for these things must come to pass before the end, but the end is not yet. The nation will rise against nation, kingdom against king, uh, kingdom. Uh, you see this, and that's what we saw. The third judgment that's going to come upon this earth is the area of famine. And notice in the middle of verse 7, Jesus talks about famine, talks about death, that's pestilence. All these things are the beginning of sorrow. We saw the multitude in heaven who had lost their life for the Savior, this worldwide persecution. Verse 9, then sh thou shall they deliver you up afflicted, they will kill you, you will be hated of all nations for my name's sake, and they shall, uh, then shall many be offended, betray one another, and shall hate one another. This mass persecution against believers. And then when the Antichrist 
breaks the covenant, the treaty with Israel, and unleashes this massive persecution of believers. We see that in chapter 24, verse 15, when the Antichrist makes his move, declares that he is God. Verse 16, let them that are in Judea flee into the mountain. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. 18, neither let him that was in the field return back to the clothes. Woe to them that are with child, to those that give suck in those days. Pray that your flight not be in winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be, literal phrase, the great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be, and except those days are shortened, there would be no one left. This is the period that we've been looking at at the book of Revelation. Now, Jesus has just defeated Antichrist and the false prophet. They're in the, the lake of fire. The armies are annihilated. Satan has been confined. There's something else. Notice in chapter 24, verse 27. Here's what Jesus fills in for us when we think about his return. For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines into the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Verse 29, we've seen this. Immediately after the tribulation of, the, of those days shall the sun be darkened, the moon will not give her light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of heaven shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and glory, great glory. And notice, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four corners, from one end of heaven to the other. This is not the rapture. When Jesus comes back to this earth, he gathers all of his people together because he has some things he's going to share with them, and then he's going to announce to them, we're going to have a new world, and this is for you. Okay, and he's going to do that. Notice what else he does. In verse 36, when all of this happens, it says, But of that day and hour knoweth no man, not the angels of heaven, only my Father. And now notice Noah. For as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. He points back to Noah. Now, you remember what happened during Noah's day. The people were extremely wicked. God told Noah, there's nothing I can do with them. They're, they're just like animals. I can't do anything with them anymore. They're evil continually. So what did God do? He sent a flood and took them all away, right? You remember that from Noah's day? Notice what happens. Verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered to the ark. And they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. And then it says, two will be in the field, one will be taken, literally taken away, the other will be left. 
Two women will be grinding at the mill. The one will be taken away. The other will be left. And he gives them a, a warning watch. You have to be sure of this day of judgment. What's happening when Jesus comes back to this earth? If you've never caught this before, he will gather together those who have believed in him during this awful period and have remained alive during this awful period, getting them together. He has a few things he's going to share and he is going to announce. This is the, a new world and it's for you. But the angels continue to come. They have, they have other assignments and every person that has not been right with God is taken away. Just like in Noah's day, people who were not right with God were taken away with the flood. In the same way, in the very same way, when Christ comes back, those who are not right with God will be taken away. I won't take the time to look at it with you, but in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 13, there are two parables that talk about that. And where when the Son of Man returns in his power and great glory and the angels with him and will remove all things that offend and then the righteous will shine. When Jesus gets done, the only people who are left on this earth are people who are true believers. That's it. And there is a new period that the Savior will lead the world into a reconstruction time, a reconstruction period, where the world is rebuilt. Thinking about what it's been through and it's in ashes, the Savior will rebuild the world and it will be, it will be more than you can understand. The Old Testament explains it like this. <clears throat> First of all, the creation itself, the land that was cursed in the Garden of Eden because of Adam and Eve's sin and the thistles and the problems and all that, that's going to be gone. The curse that's covered this earth is going to be removed. Uh, the book of Isaiah refers to the deserts will begin to blossom like the rose. Everything's going to change. The, the world itself, just the land area, is going to become breathtaking, beautiful. That's what's going to happen. The animal kingdom will change. The lion will lay down with the lamb. That won't work today. Uh, the lion's going to have lamb chops, all right? But there will be no problem with the animal kingdom. The animal kingdom will not be eating each other, fighting with each other. It will not be cruel. It will not be savage. The lion will lay down with the lamb. The children will be able to go out and play without dangerous animals hurting them. Uh, the, some of the things in the book of Isaiah that we're told. People will live longer lives. There will be no disease. There will be no crime allowed. Now, as people live on the earth and they have children repopulate the earth, Satan will not be there to bother them. The world will not have an allurement to pull people away from God because the Savior will make life so beautiful. He will be the government that there's no reason not to love and honor God. But people who are born 
will still have a sin nature and they will have to learn how to handle that. But we are told in the book of Isaiah that when a person is getting ready to commit a crime, that Christ will take him out. Crime simply will not be allowed. There will be total disarmament. There will not be any wars. There will not be any, uh, there will not be any socially, racially uh, tensed riots in the streets. All that's gonna be gone. And the period that we call the millennium for a thousand years is going to be a wonderful time. And it's gonna be in such contrast to uh, what the earth has gone through and how sin has put a stranglehold in the world. And when Christ comes, he puts that to an end. If you want to have a good look into the millennium, look at David Jeremiah in the book of Revelation. He has a clip on the millennium that can look uh, more detail than, than I can do it. And our time is done. I'm going to have to quit. I've gone way over. But when Christ returns, he will not only have dealt with the sin of this world, he will have removed all sinners. And the only people who are left on this earth are people who have believed in him and who have within them a love for God. And that will be the nucleus with the Jewish people who have been saved, the 144,000 who come through this, that will be the nucleus to rebuild the world and they will have the most incredible life because Christ will rule. He will be the government of the world. And as Diane kind of asked last week, we will help with that. I'll show you how that will happen in just a minute. I won't take the time to deal with it here uh, for questions and things like that. But Christ has returned and the world finally has peace, perfect peace, in every way, shape, or form. Wow, here we are. Let me go through this real quick. This is what we've seen the last 10 weeks. Look at the screen, the review. We saw Christ in his glory, the unveiling, his great glory, John's trip to heaven, picture of the rapture. We saw the Savior take that seven-sealed scroll that was the deed of the earth. He owns everything. He can do everything. Chapter 6, we saw an overview, that panoramic view that highlights key aspects of the tribulation. Then we looked at people. We looked at faithful servants and those who would believe them. We also looked at the beast, the Antichrist, and those who would lead the world in sin against God. We looked at the Jewish temple and two witnesses. Then we looked at the judgments that were going to fall, the judgment trumpets, the vial, and then the return of Christ that ushers in this brand new period called the millennium. There is much we did not see, but I think this will give you a pretty good handle on the book of Revelation. <laughs> we could have another 10 weeks and look at what we left out, but I don't think we're going to do that. But I want to quit this and see what kind of questions you have. Thank you so much for staying with us for this time. Uh, we hope that it's been valuable to you and practical too.